We'll repeat again tonight the visualization we did last week, which was this most unusual one. We talked a great deal last week about how wrong action is always motivated by fear. That if I don't do something, something that I don't want to happen will happen. So one of the fundamental keys to consistent right action is to overcome our fears. Swami suggests we practice by visualizing some situation, as he says, of which you feel fearful, perhaps the loss of something you'd like to obtain or triumph by an enemy over you, public embarrassment, some overriding failure, some deep disappointment. He suggests that we visualize what we fear as if it had actually happened. So take a moment and see whatever it is that we fear right in front of us. Try to feel the weight or the pain, whatever it might be, as if it were right in front of us. Omiji then says, now applies the antidote to whatever this terrible situation is, this simple observation. We still exist. Nothing about our deep inner reality has been changed or in fact ever can change. Whatever this terrible fearful situation is, See the contrast between at the surface of our consciousness, the surface of our lives, the external part of our lives. See it swirling about us. Then sink deep into the inner core of our being, into the in and the outflow of the breath, the beating of the heart, the sense of self, unborn, undying, the ever-changeless. See that still center at the storm of whatever maelstrom is raging on the outside. Go back and forth between the two realities in your visualization. Observe how nothing, not even the death of the body, can actually touch the seed reality that is yourself. Feel how that deep inner self is profoundly and eternally connected 
to the eternal ocean of existence. See now how the little maelstrom that we fear is turbulent waves on the top of a vast ocean. Rise to the surface and feel the pounding waves sink to the depths of your own self, the deepest part of yourself. See how vast the ocean is and how small the turbulent wave is by comparison. Feel that all one's fears, realized or imaginary, are but the churning of waves on the surface of the deep ocean, dramatic in themselves, but eventually merely an illusion, merely the ocean deep depth playing for a time on the surface and inevitably sinking back into itself. Let the power of this visualization be our anchor point in the midst of the turbulence, in the midst of the fear. Anchor yourself in the unchanging self. Feel also how that unchanging self is the source of all power, the key element in manifesting successfully whatever you set your mind to do. Om, peace, amen. Greetings, great souls. As I promised you all, I wasn't going to take another trip unless I took another trip. So I'm taking another trip. Um, You all know that Swamiji is starting a new renunciate order, a new age, a new new age renunciate order. That's what the book is called. You saw him here. He was all dressed in bright blue. Um, Well, he left America without ever conducting an initiation here. And he also left America, I noticed, without talking about when he was coming back. It's the first time he's ever done that. Um, That doesn't mean he won't. It was just notable that he didn't commit himself before he left. But in any case, he finished writing his book about renunciation, then is ready to start the order. He, in the CC, they're always having ecumenical events, and they're always having world peace events. It's the place where they do it. So they had some ecumenical world peace event a couple of days ago, and Ever since um, he was here, Swamiji is always wearing his blue um, Naya Swami outfit now instead of his traditional orange one, uh, almost always. So he went to that event and he was wearing his blue robes. And uh, he, I guess he announced something about the new order. And afterwards, one of the priests said, and how many people are there in this new order? He said, just me. <laughs> He's so guileless, you know, without any attempt to explain it. One. <laughs> Um, but he doesn't want there to be one indefinitely. So he's actually set an initiation in Assisi, and it'll be Friday the 19th of November. And he's asked about six six from this country, maybe eight from here. Jyotish and Devi, um, David and me, Freeman and Padma, who, who are our counterparts in Seattle. By doing that, he basically seeds the whole West Coast because the 
tradition that he's establishing is the same as the other Swami order almost, which is that once someone becomes, is ordained as a Swami, then they can ordain others. Although the way, the way the traditional order has been until now is one Swami can make another Swami. It's totally, you see, non-institutional. It's just individual. Swamiji has expanded it that it takes three sannyasis to initiate one because he wants it to be just a little more considered, I think is his idea. Anyway, so, um, and then Nirmal and Dharmadas are coming from India. And I, I just read this in an announcement from Assisi today in Kirtani and Anand, who are the leaders of Ananda Sisi. So I don't think, as I understand it, he'll be initiating many others. Um, but he might. I know nothing, honestly. But he called us and said, can you come? And we've, we, we knew this was lurking in the possibility. So every time I said we weren't traveling anymore this year in my heart, it said, I said, except maybe if we do. So uh, we're going to just go for one week. We'll leave a week from today. We'll come back Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I think all of us are going to do that because we all have to be home for Thanksgiving. So it's going to be a short trip, but a very dramatic one. Yes, Brenda? Mm-hmm. Yes, I hope you like it. Yeah. In fact, any of you who are anywhere close to my size, come to my house. We're having a big giveaway. My closet is now on my couch, and you're welcome to it. Eventually, we'll have something that is uh, uh, looks more like a, a habit, a robe. But um, he articulates all this in the book. If you all have not seen this book and you want a copy, write to me and I'll send you an electronic version. It will be published within a couple of months. But if you haven't seen it yet and you want to, just send me an email and I'll send it off to you. Um, uh, eventually, we'll have some kind of standard garb, which is meant to be, he wanted a unisex outfit. A men and women would wear the same. Um, this is for the, uh, the sannyas. There's also essentially like a novice, uh, which is... and. Um, it would be, he, mean, he, had, he set up certain parameters. It would be a long tunic with pajama-style trousers, which means, you know, no creases and loose. Um, he had originally said that the women, that they would both be mid-calf. He since shortened the men's. But now he's also talking about a floor-length robe as well as a shorter one. He didn't particularly want anything going on up here, no buttons, just play, very plain. Um, and... And and this the very deep bright color that he was wearing, uh, which you know this is similar to it. It's similar to what's on the chairs there. Uh, at the same time, he also said it may not. It may not feel appropriate depending on where we live and how we're living to wear it all the time. So it may be that you know for Ananda functions we would dress like that it, within the context of Ananda we would, but whether or not we would walk down the street and go to the Safeway so attired would be something that he would like to see it, how it evolves. He spoke in, in favor of um, not, not necessarily hiding the fact that we have a, a different commitment than most people. He said, well, when David said to him, sir, we've spent all these years trying to blend, <laughs> his answer was, well, maybe it's time to stand out again meaning that it may just be time to, to be a rallying point for people's commitment. But he left it really open. And so my personal decision has been that um, I'm going to assume the color. 
um, whether or not it'll manifest as it does now with clothes I happen to own that just look like my regular clothes, or whether I'll make some modified costume. I'm sort of, you know, sort of half thinking about exactly how I'll do it. Is, is you know, women can wear all sorts of things, and it just looks like what it looks like. Um, if you wear it with contrasting trousers, it looks less like a like a, you know, like something unusual and just more like whatever it is. But uh, yeah, my closet's changing color. I would like to have it all done before I come home. This to me is not, this is not business as usual, both for my own sake. I mean, I, for my own sake, I've been thinking about this for months. I you know this is, I know what this means and I want it to show both in my own heart and in my life. So it's very, it's actually, it's really extraordinary. I mean, I'm sharing it with you because I'm, because there won't be any class next week. I don't know if there was anyway, but there won't be. And I just wanted you to know why. And when we come back, it'll be a little different. People have asked whether we'll come back with different names. I don't know. He's talked about the possibility of changing our names. Um, he's also talked about the possibility of not changing our names. So I have no idea. We'll see. And then once we come back, we will be in a position to um, bring others into this New Age Renunciate Order. And uh, uh, monks, people who want to be monks and nuns, um, married couples who want to enter the novice stage, essentially, and then individuals who are sufficiently experienced and clear-minded that they know they're ready for sannyas. And it'll be within our responsibility and um, uh, authority to make those decisions. Swamiji is very definite that people have to apply. This is not appointed. This has to be something you feel. Even though I told him at least 10 or 12 times how eager I was to do this, when it actually came down to it, he said, you know, are you going to apply? (laughs) And I had to say, okay, yes, sir, may I? You know, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even assume it as many times as I'd spoken to him about it. It's very serious, not not serious, serious, but you know, <laughs> there's a lot of gravitas to it because it's very real. This is this is the same as if we went off and came back in orange robes. It's just that the robe is blue, and we don't have to leave our spouses. That's the other thing that he's is very nice. He's he's he's. He just felt that that's not the definition of dedication to God anymore. And that it's, it's fair to allow couples to stay, to remain couples and still be renunciates. Julia. Couples who aren't married are not, not really couples. I mean, you can just do whatever you like as individuals. Couples who are married are not bound the couple question was, what about unmarried couples? Um, he uses the word in the vow, partner. Um, and, uh, but even if you are legally married, or whatever, however married you are, it does, it's not necessary for both of you to want to take sannyas in order to do it. It just has to be um, appropriate within the context of whatever commitments you have. So, if 
it's quite possible that for one reason or another, only half of a married couple would be appropriate for only half of a married couple. One can think of many reasons why that might be true. And it wouldn't necessarily preclude. But it would. that's where the discrimination and the sensitivity of whoever's making, who's ever accepting your application has to come into play. One could not appropriately accept half of a couple if to do so would would be wrong, you know. But one could not also arbitrarily say, well, you can't do it because your partner doesn't want to, if that is, is a meaningless distinction. So it would depend. Okay? So, great adventure. Keep us in your prayers. Really a lifetime adventure. I think it will actually, in the end, have a profound and enormous effect on Ananda. Um, the first almost ten years of Ananda were entirely defined by uh, a, an extremely dedicated, visible core of uh, renunciates. I know that the Sevaka order is also a monastic order, but it was a different kind of renunciation. And I don't mean to be rude in saying that, but it was. It just was different. I don't know how else to say it. And the loss of that, which happened in 81, when Swami himself got married and the whole monastic order just went out the window. I think I talked about it here, and Swami's talked about it many times. The greatest concern, basically, that all of us had was how the Ananda community would thrive spiritually without that at the core of it, essentially setting the bar at a high enough level that everything else would rise up underneath it. And I think Ananda has thrived beautifully, but I think putting this back in is going to uh, have a wonderful effect. So, we'll see. So, any other questions or thoughts on that before we go forward? I'm telling you that because it's so much in my mind, I can't... It's been in my mind utterly constantly since the beginning of June, but now it's actually going to happen, so... Okay. So now we are on Lesson 6, which is the last lesson we're going to do in this series. Did I actually say we would do 1 through 6? Did I guess this right? I never said anything. I didn't commit anything. That was smart of me. (laughs) In a moment of clarity, I kept my cards close to my chest and never promised you anything. Partly because the great lesson of number 6 is about keeping your word, (laughs) which is very, very important. Okay. Um, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts or questions from last week. We talked a lot about fear. Take the microphone if you would. Mm -hmm. Excuse me for a moment. I just wanted to say something. You know, the fact that I have an intention to express this experience through my wardrobe is, is really just about me. I wouldn't want to be so trivial as to say if someone chooses, for example, my husband, not to express it through his wardrobe, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with his consciousness. <laughs> Partly we're talking about me and my relationship to my wardrobe. You know, from the first time this came out, it was, it was actually very funny because I was with my friends in Assisi when this came up and a lot of the women were talking about blue and... I had to be very, very honest. I mean, the thought of giving up my closet... I mean, I know what real renunciation is, and in truth, you know, I could give up my closet in a heartbeat, but because I was having to decide to give up, I had to be very honest. It was not easy. I was just amazed to just watch all the tendrils of 
involvement, you know, just going out into that closet. So I, part of the reason that I am doing it is because I did care. If I didn't care, I might not bother. But I did care, and I do care, so therefore, you know, you have to do something. It, it was like when I moved out of that apartment that we lived in for so long. We lived there 18 years. I mean, it was, you know, one of the apartments in our community. They're not horrible, but it's not architectural digest. You know, you don't like, oh, you don't dream your whole life. Maybe someday I can live in an apartment like that. But when we, we moved out of it to move into Chela Bhavan, where we live right now, I was, well, the only word is I was appalled at the level of emotional involvement I had right in that place. I mean, attachment is the only word, but it was just like amazing to me the degree to which, by any, you know, objective standard, we were even upgrading, you know. But it was just like this was my place. I had all these thousands of little investments in all the corners of the whole thing. and It was awful, you know. I just said, never again. You know, I'll live wherever you want me, Lord, but I'm, I hope to God, I'll, I don't know if I'll be tested, but I, I feel differently. I'm consciously aware at all times I'm not going to invest my emotions into where I live. I'll enjoy it, I'll love it, I'll be very, very happy there, but I'm not going to invest my emotions. And to think that my emotions are invested in my sweaters was a little <laughs> embarrassing. Now, go so, ahead. Oh, <laughs> Where do I talk? I forget. Right here. Uh, I have a question about last week when you were talking about the, um, that very funny story when you were telling us about the suitcases. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, the, yes. Yeah. And I guess I didn't really get, it was really interesting and fun, but I really didn't get the point of that, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, there you have it. Because... <laughs> Well, relating to the lessons, because you... Because I was dishonest, absolutely dishonest. And you or Swami would not want us to do that. So what was the point of that story? Anything but but just fun. Here's the first point of the story, (laughs) that everybody's moral fiber fiber can be eroded after 24 hours on an airplane. (laughs) Um, the, The point actually was that I was describing to you why Swami talks so much about whether or not you should take bribes in these lessons, because these lessons were written for current Indian society. That was actually the point of the story. I was expressing to you how, how, how completely a matter of everyday business bribing officials is in present Indian culture. And so when he really asserts, do not bribe anybody, do not accept bribes, do not think about bribing, it's really a... a in America, you hear it and you think, well, yeah, I'm sure every, in many situations money must change hands. I mean, it does in all countries. But at least if we do it here, it's a secret. You know, there it's just wide open business as usual to be exchanging money like that. The fact that I did it was actually a very... I, I didn't really quite know what to do in the moment. When I finally actually understood that he wanted me to bribe him, I knew how much stuff I was bringing in, I knew how much it might really cost to really bring it in. I, I really just wasn't quite sure what to do. And I opted for the easy route in the moment, um, really because I was alone and because I was tired. And, and I just wasn't sure what the moral principle was, to be very honest. I mean, I knew that it was not entirely legal, but everything that's, Ill, that's illegal is not immoral. 
and so I just didn't know where what what the re- I just couldn't quite in the moment figure out what the real principle was. Was it a, was the greater principle to just bring in the things that we needed in a in a method that we could afford, or was it to embroil myself in endless red tape? And I didn't actually know where the bribing might end. I didn't honestly know that at what point I could stop. You know, because I just don't. I didn't know the culture. It was my first trip since you know all of that. So I'm not, I'm not ashamed of having done it. I'm not proud of it. When I sort of said it to Swami afterwards, you know, he was, he was a little, I mean, it, he hadn't made the decision. And I just said to sir, him, sir, I really just didn't know what, what the right thing to do was in the moment. So I just did what I could so I could get out of there. I just, the, the one thing I really couldn't face in the moment was staying there endlessly when it wasn't clear to me that a real principle was involved. Yeah. So I think that's a fair question. Master was respectful of laws, but he wasn't mindless. He didn't consider that obeying man's laws was the highest value. You know, um, the the smallest incident, and I'm sure there were others, was you know bringing the mangoes into California. I mean, he wasn't supposed to bring mangoes into California, but he brought mangoes into California. I'm sure he didn't consider it um, a, an unrighteous act to do so. So, but I I can't really say whether I did the right thing or not. I simply did it, and there it was. Yeah. Okay. Good question, and uh, <laughs> thank you for helping me tell you what the point was. You know, sometimes we just get we just become amused with our own eloquence, and we just go on and on. <laughs> or we see a moment to make everyone laugh, and we go for it. Okay. So, anything else? Um. There's a, a couple of points. Let me just try to... Right. There's a couple of real points that I wanted to pull out of this lesson and really emphasize before we leave it behind. And one is, you know, that this, whole, this whole course, as I introduced it in the first class, and as I always think about it, is I consider it um, an, uh, an extension of Swami Kriyananda's autobiography because this is the explanation of how Swamiji has accomplished what he's accomplished. By any measurement, what he has accomplished is phenomenal. If any human being did a fraction of what he did, they would consider it to be stunningly productive. Um, the fact, as I mentioned in the first class, that, that, that Swamiji did all of this from the age of 36, starting really at zero. He, was, he, he had no friends, he had no organization behind him, he had strong enemies, in fact, who were, who were bent and have remained bent on preventing him from doing anything. Um, he was penniless. He was living with his parents. He had no professional degree. He had nothing except his discipleship, huh. which is like to say he had everything, and his absolute determination to live up to what his guru had asked him to do. And then he went forward and made all of this happen. Um, and the way, as, as, we're, as we're wending our way through this, I've been chatting with different friends just from time to time, you know, of course, this course in How to Manifest is also a course in self-transformation. And he mentioned that specifically in this lesson. It's very interesting. He basically says, um, you must always act from the center of yourself because it is really your own vibrations that make everything happen. 
And we'll come back to that point in a moment. But of course, therefore, it's the quality of your vibrations that make everything happen. And the quality of your vibrations is simply the quality of your consciousness. You know, your vibrations are your consciousness. You can lay all kinds of fancy words. You can have all kinds of um, beautiful clothes on top of it. Anything that you want. But it's really in a world of energy... It's magnetism and energy and it's your vibrations that, that um, determine your success or failure and the quality of whatever it is that you produce. And so therefore, you know, it, it's a dual reality here. An enormous amount of attention has to be given to the inner consciousness. And then, of course, there are the techniques that we've been working with. You know, focusing energy, holding the thought in your mind, vibrating energy around it, visualizing the light coming in, many different things that this whole course is about. Um, So Swamiji really speaks really directly in this chapter, and it's really interesting to me. And he says, the reason I've been able to accomplish so many things, and he gives us a few examples. And And this lesson is called The Bottom Line, First Things First. And he says that his bottom line has always been, essentially he calls it his inner peace. But what he's saying is that his own consciousness has always been the first thing and the primary thing he was focused on producing. Even though, and it's interesting the way he puts that, hundreds of people came in time to depend for their material security on my activities. In other words, you know, his actions were, were literally supporting hundreds of other people, not, not the, his income, but his actions. You know, as the years passed and Ananda began to grow, especially in those first maybe 20 years, when Swami Kriyananda was still at the center of it, if anything had happened to him, or if any way his, he had ceased to be as effective as he was, there was no other power that would have held it together. All of those people would have simply been just, you know, suddenly nowhere and would have had to figure it out all from a different place. I mean, it was a tremendous act of faith on everyone's part, but, it, but Swamiji was conscious of that at all times, that the continuing continuation of this, hundreds of people were depending on him. It crossed a certain line, you know, maybe after 25 years where um, it it had a self-perpetuating energy, but especially in the beginning. And thousands more for their spiritual well-being. The pressures on me to perform, as he puts it, were sometimes, to my size of regret, intense. So what he's trying to say is, look, whatever you are carrying, I carried as much as you And he doesn't say that to make himself seem important. He just wants us to understand that don't try to say, oh, but my situation is different. You know, we we, we take care of ourselves, we take care of our family, we take care of a few people who may depend on us. If we are fortunate enough to develop a business and have employees, we have people who rely on us. You know, I've talked to businessmen and others, You, you begin to get something going and everybody else is leaning on you. And, and it's not merely whether you want to continue or not, it's that if you stop, what happens to all the rest of these people? I mean, these are the things that can easily wear a person out. And, and, but Swamiji says, in the midst of all of this, I, always, my, I never allowed my bottom line to become monetary. That place of priority was given to my inner peace. Now, number one to recognize the importance of that. And number two, as he tries to explain in this lesson, to realize that even his monetary success was because 
he never allowed anything to disturb his inner peace. He put it to me once in in very simpler terms, but many years ago at, at the beginning, where, you know, I had a lot of energy, but my energy was by no means under my control. And really often my energy would just spin out into um, where my vibrations would get off because I would just become over intense or whatever the things that people can do. And he, he, I remember very vividly he said to me once, your intention is to do good, but you won't necessarily do more good merely by doing more. It was, it was a lesson that I really understood because... Often we think, well, I've got to keep working, I've got to keep making this happen, I've got to keep doing this. But what he was saying is, what really creates success is the quality of your magnetism. And if the quality of your magnetism is off, the more of it you generate will not bring you more success. You might even be able to do things, but those things won't have the quality of consciousness that they need in order to magnetize the success that you're trying to magnetize. And that was a just an absolutely exquisite explanation, which for me has always been my criteria ever since then, which is whenever I feel that my magnetism is off, no matter, really virtually no matter what, I don't do it. Because I know if my magnetism is off, it's not only not going to bring success, it's going to ensure disaster. Um, that's what I often say to people, you know, d- just don't hesitate to, to call me or ask anything of me any time of the day or night because if I can't do it, I will tell you. And, and can't do it to means to me, and I know what it feels like, if to do it would make my magnetism wrong and then whatever it is we're trying to accomplish won't happen. But as long as I can do it with the right magnetism, I'm perfectly happy to do it because that is really the only criteria that matters. Now, that also requires, because sometimes one doesn't have the freedom to say no. So that also requires that one train oneself in essentially resetting your consciousness. So you have to catch yourself early enough and develop enough um, interconnectedness to be able to reset if necessary, you know, and be able to go on. And if not, then you have to pull back a little bit. You know, Master... This is not exactly the same, but close to it. When Master was um, trying to finish Lake Shrine in order for the dedication, apparently he had them working just, you know, endless hours because he set the dedication at such a date that they really, you know, it was an almost impossible deadline to meet. And one of the monks who was working on some critical part of finishing, I think, the golden lotuses or something, simply didn't show up one day. And the next day Master said, Where were you? You know, why didn't you come yesterday? He said, sir, I was meditating. Oh, Master said, fine. <laughs> why didn't you say so, he said. <laughs> that Because he, the man felt like meditating. And to Master, oh, sure, well then, by all means, that takes priority over everything. Your inner consciousness is the only thing that matters. And of course, Master must have sensed the sincerity of, of the man's statement rather than some effort to escape from work or else he wouldn't have just acknowledged it like that. Um, I remember years ago, let's see, how did this work? When a man was, uh, this was when Shivani was working in the garden at Ananda Village. This was in the first, the early 70s, when mostly there was like, you know, just three or four jobs. You either went into the garden, farmed, you went into the kitchen and cooked what they grew, 
or you became a carpenter and you tried to build shelter. And there wasn't a lot more sophisticated going on, a few little jobs here and there. But the gardeners, well, I was a cook, so the gardening work seemed impossibly difficult to me. They thought the cooking was hard. I thought the gardening was impossible. They, it was mostly hand tools. They had very few machines. The weather was really hot. And of course, you know, when it has to be harvested, it has to be harvested. And Shivani would get, Shivani was in, one of the people in charge of the garden, and she's a solid, hardworking woman and a pretty tough taskmaster. She has high standards, and, and she would get these really, really flaky airheads out there, you know, who would, in the middle of the pumpkin harvest, would decide that Krishna wanted them to go to the river, would just drive her <laughs> absolutely crazy. <laughs> and, and she said, uh, she, would, she explained once to Swami, I think I put this in my book now that I think about it, that in gardening, you know, when the crops were ripe, you had to take them out of the field, or months and months of work would just be lost. And if it took you all day and all night to harvest because the frost was coming, you had to stay up all day and all night. You couldn't just not want to do it. She said, I know that people are more important than things, but aren't some things equally important? (laughs) And she said, aren't uh, some things more important than people's egos? Is what she actually said. And Swamiji said, yes, but before you take a stand on that point, you better be sure you can tell the difference between their welfare and their ego preference. In other words, you better look to your own before you speak. And so, you know, there's, there are times when uh, you have to force yourself and you have to find your inner peace by saying, well, this simply needs to be done. And you have to practice when it's easier. That's why you see how all of the yoga principles come together in this respect. You have to practice being even-minded and cheerful. You have to practice being willing Um, when it's not that hard to be willing, so that when the demands of what you're doing require you to push beyond what you would comfortably call your inner peace, that your inner peace doesn't become so small that you don't have the energy to do what really needs to be done. Because sometimes you just have to work. There's just no way around it. It just, you know, something has to be done, it has to be done. You have to do it. And Master's energization exercises... Um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how it all comes together. Master's energization exercises practiced on a regular, systematic basis are one of the fundamental keys for being able to make inner peace your first priority. Because what that gives you is that gives you the capacity to, to, to draw energy at will from the infinite source and to direct it to whatever goal you have set in your mind to do. Because the main, one of the main reasons that people feel they, they can't deal with something is because we don't have enough energy to deal with it. Isn't that right? And so if you've regularly practiced the energization exercises, it becomes second nature to you to be able to say, okay, I'm just going to do this. And, you know, Master, when uh, the Diamata and the other women would talk about how Master regularly just had them work all night on various things, just to stay up all night and work as much as anything, just to break the thought in their mind that they couldn't do it. And you know, recently, for some reason, I've had to stay, I've had to stay up all night, or, or very late at night, you know, more times than I have in years and years. And it's, it's really sort of fun. I mean, I eventually get very tired and I have to sleep. I can't go 24 hours and then go another 24 or anything like that. But it's really interesting how you can just set your mind that you're going to do it. I find it's the best way to do it is to just block the clocks off 
just don't have anything telling you that what you're doing is unusual. Just simply do what needs to be done. Now, Swamiji also talks in here, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, because then he describes how he keeps his inner peace. And it's interesting, of all the things he could say, he gives us a few, a few points here. First, he says, is he never allows himself to be drawn into other people's priorities. Isn't that interesting? That's the first thing he tells us. In other words, he must, you always must remain centered in yourself. Even if other people have all these different ideas about how things should go, you need to be centered in yourself. I find it, I, I mean, this is something I've always noticed about Swamiji, because I tend to be excitable, and he's steady. And for years and years and years, I've watched this. Even if we're very late, and we're going to have to go somewhere, we're going to have to, you know, just get out the door and, and get there, I, I never, have never observed in Swami a quality of hurry. You know, he'll move as fast as he needs to move, but he never allows the fact that everybody thinks we're late to actually affect his energy. He'll finish his meal, he'll fold his napkin, he'll put on his shoes, you know, he'll just, it's not like he moves slowly or foolishly, but he won't let the atmosphere around him actually change his inner consciousness. And, and he puts it even farther. He never lets other people's priorities, merely because someone tells him something is important and has to be decided now, he doesn't, he doesn't buy into that thought unless it also resonates with what's true with him. And I mean, I love the way he puts it. Even when people write to him with a sense of urgency about the answer, he says he will answer them if he feels that their welfare is at stake. But if they merely feel they have to have an answer... He says, I didn't ask them to write to me in the first place. (laughs) I mean, it's a very interesting point. Merely because someone makes an assumption that you're obligated doesn't necessarily mean that you are obligated. And again, you see how inwardly conscious all that is and how easily most people get sucked into energy around them without even being aware of the fact that the consciousness they're now expressing is only a reflection of someone else's and not necessarily an energy from their own source. And people don't necessarily like it if you don't make their priorities your own. I'm speaking in a purely theoretical way, but sometimes husbands and wives dispute on this point. Perhaps you might have heard of stories in which this could have happened, you know, in which she thinks that he ought to be doing so-and-so and he doesn't think he ought to be or versa vice, it can happen the same way. And there's just this assumption that my priority is yours. But it isn't. I mean, I remember, I'll be, I'll quit pretending. I remember once that I went on this long tangent with David. I, to my, the only excuse I have is that it was more than 20 years ago. I just wanted him to do something. What exactly I wanted him to do is not clear to me, but it must have been fundamental because the underlying argument went on for months. You know, we weren't, we weren't, you know, like fighting. But there was always this underlying effort on my part to coerce him into some point of view in his utterly and absolute refusal to do so. And at, at one point, finally, I just realized that this is crazy. 
you know, this, we can't go on living like this. And I, I just started quizzing him like a journalist, you know, asking him a couple of questions. Essentially, the question first one was, do you know what it is that I'm asking of you? Because communication is not always crystal clear. Oh, yes, he said, just perfectly willing to admit it. <laughs> I said, then why don't you do it? He said, I, I, perfectly, it's not my priority. I said, oh, the second thing I said, do you think it's a good idea? He said, oh, yeah. I said, then why don't you do it? He said, it's not my priority. You know, there's other things that are simply more important as far as I'm concerned for my priorities. And that, you know, that was the end of it because, well, that was a very honest answer. It was a very sensible answer. And if the situation had been reversed, I would have been as immovable as he. Because if it didn't resonate from my own inner reality, why should I just go with it just because he was excited about it? And that was precisely what I was doing. You know, so it's it's not that we shouldn't be attentive. Self-evidently, we should be attentive. We should be open. We should be humble. But we shouldn't. And this is how he says he keeps his inner peace in the midst of everything. Just hold on to your, yourself. He also, I love this part. If I didn't address an issue that to others seemed urgent, I found that it just gradually worked itself out anyway. I met this woman when I was back east, and she'd been on a three-week trip, and she was the manager of a big business enterprise. She said she came back, she had 1,200 emails. She sent out a notice to everyone declaring, I'd never heard this phrase before, email bankruptcy. <laughs> she declared that all, you know, she simply wasn't going to meet her credit creditors, that she was declaring email bankruptcy and all those emails were gone and that, you know, anybody who happened to want something from her was going to have to start over because those were wiped out by email bankruptcy. <laughs> It was sort of just that, which is, it, they, it might have been their priorities, but it's not mine. I, I confess that on more than one occasion, I've just either eliminated or lost. I never, I'm never anxious when I lose emails. I figure if it's important, it'll return. Um, but that's, that's part of it, because life is very, very complicated these days. I think the biggest issue that we face now is that it's so complicated, and so many different things pull on us. So we have to stay very, very clearly centered in whatever it is that we need to do because we, we simply can't do everything. Um, I've, I've had to deal in my own life with a lot of anxiety and a, a, you know, a, a, an exa- I become nervous when there's so many demands. I have become nervous. I'm really not that way anymore because of exactly this. But I finally decided, well, I'll just do what I can and everything else will... My, my, my phrase is, something will happen. And you know, something always does happen. And either that something that happens is good or not, but something always happens, you know, and then we just go on. It's like, in other words, the world doesn't stop merely because I haven't participated. Something always happens. It's very relaxing to realize that. Okay? Um, The second thing he says, and he calls it, I've developed a team of assistants who could act on my behalf. But what he's really saying is he, he, he believes that other people... He, he works consciously to, to develop people around him who, and he puts it really perfectly, who have the right spirit. And that's, a, that's another factor that he's, he's putting into place here. So often, we become so fixed on the details of things that we imagine that how those details are done is the definition of whether they're done well. Swamiji has always had the attitude that if a person has the right spirit 
and has the right consciousness, in other words, if their vibrations are correct, then there's many different ways to do things. And he's never been anxious about the details of how you do it as long as you're going about it in the correct way. So he, he talks about cultivating the people in his world, and he's in, a, he's in an executive position with a large project. I mean, not all of us have people around us. But insofar as we're working with others, he says, you know, many people who run com- who've founded communities have the feeling that they have to do absolutely everything themselves. And the more you do that, the more you have to do that. Because the more you do that, the more, one, you never really cultivate people around you who have executive abilities because people with executive abilities won't want to work for you. Because all you really want is a servant, and if they don't want to be a servant, then they won't want to work with you. And um, the second factor is that how much can one person do? It just becomes exhausting after a while. Why don't we take a brief break? All right. Any questions or thoughts about anything we've discussed so far? Yes, Pam. I'm still not completely clear, and I guess I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit longer on Uh this distinction. When we, I guess it's it's our consciousness, but where am I, how how do I know I'm so centered in myself in a very charitable way that I can disregard someone else's requests for something. Um, the, the actual phrase he uses, I don't allow other people's priorities to become my priorities. It's a very interesting way to put it. It's not that he disregards their requests. It's that if somebody is telling you that this is what you have to deal with and you have to deal with it now, it, you have to be able to stay centered enough to decide whether or not in fact that's true. And the way that you're able to tell whether it's appropriate to cooperate or to disregard is really the whole rest of the story, which is the ability to be calmly centered in your intuitive self enough to be able and not to be fearful of the implications of things so that you can think objectively about it. To have, he, he writes in here, to, be, to look impersonally but kindly toward everyone. I love that phrase. That's how he puts it. He said, you, in order to be able to be intuitive and to be in the right way with people, um, you have to be impersonal but kindly. So if someone is coming and demanding something of you and you have a personal negative response toward them, then all of the rest of your judgment is going to be colored by your prejudice. Reason follows feeling. So all of the ability in the moment to be able to know what the right thing to do is, is based on having trained yourself not to be pushed off center by smaller things so that when bigger things come to you, you are rooted strongly enough that you can evaluate it. Now, does that make sense? Is that, does that help? I'm on both sides of the fence on this. I totally understand what you're saying. And it, it, maybe it was just the example that he gave about how he just didn't, he didn't respond to people, although it was important to them that he respond. I think mainly because of where I am in my life and what my job is. Uh-huh. <laughs> when people are coming to me wanting so much and I can't just decide, well, this person, I, I'm, I don't feel like answering them, so I won't. It seems to me it would have been a little more courteous just to say, I'll get back to you later or... Well, he didn't say that he didn't. He didn't say that he didn't 
give them some courteous answer. But, I mean, I've lived close to him, and people will constantly, well, I live in my own world. People are always rushing up to you, telling you you have to do something. And sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And merely because they've rushed up to you and tell you that you have to do it doesn't mean that you have to do it. And that's where he's just saying you have to keep your inner peace. But here's a point that is part of what you're um, saying here. Let me see where he says it. He talks about the fact that we, until we're liberated, we will always have an ego. There's no question about it. But it's a question that we have to have a generous, a generous ego not a small, selfish ego. So if one is inclined to have a small, selfish ego, which is to feel that everybody's imposing on me, and who are you to interrupt me, then your priority might simply be to say yes to everything that's asked of you. So it's all about being able to be neutral and calmly centered in yourself. Um, there, there, um, I've certainly been at points in my life where I say yes to a lot of things specifically because I don't want to say yes to them. Um, but my not wanting to say yes to them is not a matter of holding my inner center. It's a matter of my ego wanting to be selfish. And so I have to say yes because it's a matter of, of, using, of being, becoming more generous-hearted. And so the reason I say yes is because of my priority. <laughs> Not necessarily because of theirs, but that's all the training in order to be able to... If I know that I'm not neutral, I know that I have to push myself in the direction I'm reluctant to go until I develop that muscle, and then I can come back and be more um, even in my application of things. So David will sometimes you know, ask me over the years, why are you doing that? And I say, because I really don't want to. <laughs> And until I am able to just do it, um, I, I, I don't want to say no, because I'm saying no for the wrong reasons. Even though, by any objective standard, I would have a right to say no, but inside my heart, it's not... I know, I know that I'm saying no for a reason I don't want to honor. Um, and if you have a job where your job is to keep everybody happy, I mean, sometimes what you have to do is you have to go along with their wrong priorities because your priority is to, is to support them. You know, it's, it's, so it is a question of just being able to keep all of these factors deep within you. And the only way you can do that is if you practice when it's easier. So that when the forces really hit you, you're trained to be calmly intuitive in, in the gale. Does that help? Okay, because it's a very, very good question because you can easily say, well, I'm just being centered and following my own priorities when you're really just being a selfish pill. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it, being a selfish pill is not the same as being strongly centered in yourself because that's where he says you can be e- 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 contractively so, and you're not bigger, you're smaller. Swamiji is calmly centered on the infinite and he's not going to allow other people to agitate him when it isn't true, it isn't really true. But if I'm calmly centered on my own comforts, then anything anybody asks of me is a, is a first priority. Because the training in that situation is to overcome my attachment to my preferences. 
Because until I overcome my attachment to my preferences, I have no hope of ever being calmly centered in the truth. I will only be calmly centered in my preferences. And I might give the appearance of being my, isn't she strong in herself? But the self she's strong in is not a self that's going to take her anywhere. So you can't tell from the outside. You can only tell from the inside. And you know, sometimes people got, have get mad at Swami for not doing what they think he ought to do many times over the years. People get mad because they don't do what they think he ought to do. But uh, that's sort of like he considers that their problem. I mean, if, he, if it's appropriate, he explains himself to them. But if they're just making an unreasonable demand, he won't necessarily. He'll just let it sort itself out. You know, it takes a lot of courage to be like that, but he's a good leader. And, uh, you know, it's, there's been a lot of water under the bridge over these years. And uh, everybody has, a, you know, some people have different opinions of him. Because, and he says this himself, he's, he's very irritating to his detractors. <laughs> because he doesn't fight back, but he doesn't give in either. I mean, like, he doesn't give in. Like, if I made that clear, like, he doesn't give in. And he's even worse because he doesn't fight. He just doesn't give in. I remember once, I don't know what possessed me, but he was, I, it was, I was like a small dietary question or something, but he, he essentially told me what he wanted and why he wanted it. I think I was fixing some food for him. And I told him that the principle that he had been told was a false principle and that actually I could make this for him because it had to do with food combining or something because, yes, that was what he'd been told, but this I knew that this was true, so I went ahead and made thus and so for him. And I put this thing, according to my food combining principles, on the table. He never said a word, never changed his mood, and never touched it. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, he just, he wasn't going to fight me because I wasn't willing to listen to him, but he wasn't going to give in either. Just sat there and, you know, after a long time, I just had to take it into the kitchen and pour it down the sink because that was that. And, I mean, I learned. That was like, what was I thinking, you know? (laughs) Good lesson. Okay. Um, so he talks about now about the fact that you don't have to do everything yourself. That's he gives very specific um, rules here about developing other people's consciousness in the right way. But in in a simpler way, if that's not exactly your situation, what he's really saying is you don't have to do everything yourself. Because one of the ways of not going crazy is to realize that you don't have to do everything yourself. Um, it, it's frustrating because I somebody once came to me and they were talking about this and this is how I put it you know it's like it's, it's even more frustrating if you are actually better at doing things than other people <laughs> which you know sometimes you are this, this man was explaining this dilemma to him and I said oh it's so exquisite isn't it when you're also right when you're actually right except you're wrong because what you're right about is irrelevant to what the right thing to do is in this situation but there's this like delightful way that God plays with your mind, where you're, you're actually right, you're actually better, they are actually crummy, it's not really working. If you let them do it, they will mess it up. It's all true, but it's completely irrelevant. Because peace is your bottom line, and look what's happening to your mind when you go there. 
And do you really think that that's going to help? So you just have to be calmly centered in yourself. And, and this is where, see, all the principles work together. Where there is dharma, there is victory. So dharma is your inner peace. And if you break your inner peace, you have, you're not behaving according to right action, and therefore whatever happens beyond that is also going to be a mess. Now, of course, this is a very sensitive issue because you have to be also willing to push your limits. You can't always be perfect in everything you do. Sometimes to close up at the first sign of agitation is not expansive. So you have to play this one out a little bit. Because if you never move beyond where you're already comfortable, you're never going to grow. But he's talking on a much deeper level. And that's what I was saying earlier. This has to be combined with tremendous training in learning to restore your inner peace when something small agitates it. Because we're not talking about just getting a little off-center. We're talking about really just being swept off your feet. And, and, and then it does reach a point of no return where you have to pull back. Okay? Does that make sense? Um, and then he talks about concentration, and this is probably one of the most important things here also. He says, by devoting all my energy and attention to everything I did. This is um, two aspects here. One thing is that Swamiji has pointed out that many multi-talented people are, are, are often not happy and not that productive. Because if they're talented in many different fields, they often are spread too thin and they never really accomplish in any area and they always feel frustrated in all areas. Swamiji is multi-talented. You know, he does music, he does writing, he does visual art through photography and a little bit through architecture. He is an administrator and you know, he has lots of different skills. He's a speaker. Um, but, he, but whenever he's doing one thing, he's simply not doing the others. He, doesn't, he, he lives very much in the now is one part of it. But the other part of it is he doesn't let his mind wander into that which is not in front of him. We, we were, we've joked when he, uh, he, when he was writing the oratorio, the Christmas oratorio that we're, about, we're rehearsing to perform again. He wrote that over a period of weeks, he, you know, in a period of very intense work. And Davy made the comment once that during the period of time he was writing that, it was like he would communicate in words, but she said when you would sort of be in front of him, you would get the feeling that he was trying to tell whether you were a B-flat or an F-sharp, you know. And, and when he would listen to you, you would feel like he was trying to figure out what key you were speaking in, that, that his mind was music. And even though he would work with verbalization, he never committed himself to words while he was working with music except the words that were related to it. But he was just, he immersed himself completely. And he says also, it's interesting, he says when he's writing music, he can't imagine how he could write a book. And when he's writing a book, he just couldn't imagine how he could ever write music. It's like the whole um, way of being, he just puts it out of his mind because it's not relevant. And a, a tremendous amount of the time, we, we, we put a fraction of our energy into what's actually happening and all the rest of our energy is being dispersed into questions that are not on the table. You know, certain questions are on the table, they have to be dealt with, and all the rest of them, are not, they're not in front of us. And, and if there's anything, I think, that makes 
us not successful. It's the fact that we don't really give our full attention to what's in front of us. Or we have the habit of not doing things well. You know, it's, it's very interesting to me, just even in little ways. I'm really interested sometimes. I, I, this is just a small factor, but I sometimes watch when people clean up a kitchen. And this is so peculiar to me. They'll wash almost everything. And then they'll just leave a couple of things over in the corner. I mean, clean, when they clean up my kitchen sometimes. And I'll just think, well, you did almost everything. <laughs> Why didn't you just do those last two pieces? And it's, it's a funny syndrome to me. When I clean a kitchen, again, these are things that I've trained myself to do. If it's my job to clean the kitchen, unless there's a real reason, we're having to go to a movie and I'm just going to leave these things here. But if I'm standing there doing it, I, 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 I've trained myself to finish to just not stop when it's just almost done. But to really, you know, clean the sink, just do the whole thing. And, and to do it well. Because if you're careless in small ways, you, you get into the habit of not quite putting out the energy that's required in order to make this work. And there was this woman at Ananda Village for many years, and she was very intense. And a lot of people didn't like her. Because, you know, everything she did, she just did with so much will like this. She would, like, make other people nervous. And I remember Swami just saying to me once, don't you just love her intensity? That's how he put it. Because he saw it for what it was, which was that, and the woman has, in fact, accomplished a great deal in her life. Um, You know, against odds, just because whatever she did, even if it was just a conversation with you, you know, she was totally committed to being present. Swamiji once um, took a photograph of people on the New York subway. Uh, he did this slideshow. It was called Different Worlds. And he, he took pictures of all these different people with different kinds of consciousness, sort of illustrating it. There was a picture of these people on the subway. It was like really crowded. It was New York. They're all just standing there. You know, they're holding on. And you can just see basically that they're like in suspended animation waiting for their life to start. <laughs> and as soon as the subway thing was over, they would get off and their life would start again. And Swamiji, was, his comment was very interesting. He said, the problem is, if you cope by turning off your consciousness, it becomes a habit. And then when you want to turn it back on again, you don't know how. And, and that's the danger of just doing anything, no matter what it is, without your full attention. That's why he says, devoting all my atten- energy, he says, the necessity for devoting all my energy and attention to everything I did. I mean, he doesn't say everything important, everything creative, everything I loved, everything. He just says, all my energy and attention to everything I did. And, of course, going with that, and, and it is important, is the ability to concentrate, the ability to discipline your mind to actually give it all your energy and attention. And Master has many, many rules about learning to concentrate. This is what the Hong Sa technique is about, you know, watching the breath and allowing your consciousness to be totally absorbed in the breath. It's a concentration technique so that the next time we have to do anything, and again... These are profound, deeply practice when it is easier methods. Just we, we, can, we can never imagine that it doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't matter, I'm just doing the dishes. It doesn't matter, I'm just polishing my shoes. It doesn't matter, I'm just brushing my teeth. But what happens is it becomes a habit 
to, to just put a portion of our consciousness into something and then when we really need to put our whole consciousness into it, we don't know how. And, we, and then we don't know why we can't really write that novel or get started and get the PhD or make an A in the course or solve this problem. And he talks about in here, I knew a very successful American businessman, a multimillionaire. He's talking about Rajasi Janakananda, James J. Lynn, Master's Most Advanced Disciple. He meditated all morning and would only go into the office in the afternoon. He, was, he had so many enterprises. And he just said, frankly, he said, decisions that some people take weeks to make, Rajasi said, I can make almost instantly. And once, I, I think I mentioned this to you in another lesson, um, that this person who made a very important decision very fast, but knew it was the right decision, Swamiji says, it doesn't take time to make good decisions, it takes energy. And, you know, a lot of times what takes so long to do something is we can't decide what we should do, doesn't it? We're writing and we write a little of this, we write a little of that, we're trying to design something and a little of this and a little of that, and then we stop for a long time and we think about it. And, and sometimes that's the right rhythm, but a great deal of the time it's because we're simply not used to putting all our energy into it. So he says, why, you know, peace is my bottom line and this, this is also how I keep my peace, he says, is that, and it's interesting, it's related to peace, everything I did, I gave it all my energy and attention, which is I just don't let myself get distracted by all the other wolves that are baying at the door. It's like, you know, I'll throw them, you know, something later, but at the moment, this is the one I have to take care of. When I was talking about having to stay up very late to do certain work, you know, you can be thinking about, well, what about tomorrow? What about my sleep? What about that? Well, it doesn't matter. It's the only thing I have to do. I, I learned a tremendous number of karmic lessons through sewing. I mean, I know I talked about sewing in here, but I was 10 years old when my mother sent me out to learn to sew because she had never learned to sew and she wanted to compensate in my life. My sewing teacher was named Mrs. Taylor. Isn't that perfect? And I took to it immediately because it was a karma for me. But also, sewing has always... Sewing taught me about karma. And sewing taught me about a great many things, which is basically you get out of it what you put into it. You try to, you try to cheat, and it catches up with you. And, and one of the things that sewing has really taught me is, you know, if you've made a mistake and you have to pull the stitches out, you just have to pull the stitches out. And you can't be sitting there thinking about how you're going to put the stitches back in. You have to pull the stitches out. And if you stop concentrating on pulling them out, you rip the fabric, you miss something, you poke something sharp, and you make a hole in it. It's just a mess. And if you don't pull all of the stitches out, and then if you don't pull all the threads out, you know, I just would, all the ways in which you try to cheat. And I, I seriously, I take the lessons of sewing, and if I'm working on something else, and the same temptation will come to me where it's not so obvious... I'll remember, you know, just don't worry about what's coming next. Just pull out all the threads, remove every single tiny thread, and then start over, right? Concentrate with whole energy on the task at hand and don't let the thought of the next one intrude. And that's how you keep your peace. I'll finish with one last thought. This was one of my earliest experiences of having the voice of God speak to me. I love this. I was about 19 years old. 
I was just beginning on the spiritual path, just beginning to get the whole idea of consciousness and all of this. I was, I was, this was before I met Swami. It was a few years before I met him. I was really a newbie. And I was washing, I was literally washing dishes. And I, when I would wash dishes, I would have about 700 other things, you know, that I was also thinking about doing and trying to finish the dishes so I could get to those things and just like a hyped up squirrel all the time. And, uh, I'm just rushing to do the dishes so I can do whatever it was I wanted to do next. And I really heard this divine voice in my head, and it said, it said this, What's your hurry, honey? It's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> and it was, it was a super conscious voice. That's what it said to me. And, I, and it just, I just stopped, and I thought, Wow, that's true, isn't it? You know, there's no... What do you think you're going to finish? Like, when do you finish? You don't even finish when you're dead. You're just, you never finish. You never finish till you're infinite. What, do you think you're actually, like, going to get out of something by rushing? By trying not to pay attention? By thinking, I'm not going to give myself to this. I'm just going to skip to the next thing. One of my friends once said to me, she, her, she, um, she basically, for a while, instead of, instead of raising her child, she just tried to outlast him. You know, <laughs> just figuring pretty soon he'll grow up and so I just don't have to really, really engage. And she, she made it through for quite a long time, but then basically it doubled back on her and really hit her in the head. And when she finally cognized that she was actually going to have to raise the child and not just outlast him, she said to me very sweetly, she said, I thought I was going to get away with it. <laughs> just like that, you know, because she did look like she was going to get away with it for a while before it caught up with it. It was just so dear, I thought I was going to get away with it. We do. We think, well, I'm just really not going to actually engage in this and I'm going to pretend I can get away with it. But it's just going to be one damn thing after another. So you never really, at some point, you just buckle down and you just put everything, put all your energy into everything you do. Because, you see, once you're doing that, once you're fully engaged, totally concentrated with 100% of your energy, that's the same as being happy. That's the remarkable thing about it. Because you're, you're manifesting divine qualities. And if you're fully concentrated, giving everything you have to it, there's no part of you that's afraid or worried either. Because it's happening. Ah, oh, and that's the key to it all. Okay. So, questions or thoughts? Yes, it's true. He said, and he also said, don't ever, 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 never, 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 never quit. Isn't he the one who said that? Am I correct? (laughs) Never, 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 never quit. Very good. Anybody who's successful in any field has to a certain extent learned the same things. That's what's so interesting because it's all about energy, concentration, channeling, attunement, sensitivity, Whatever your object is. That's why if you're good at one thing, you're often good at another. I'll just give you one last story here. Sri Ramakrishna, who was a great master of the, in the 1800s, he was a very orthodox uh, Brahmin, and there was a lot of caste consciousness at that time. And um, theater, dance, people were very, considered very low caste, and often they were. Some of the actresses were prostitutes, even in things like that. But still... You know, they were artists, and one of his um, very great disciples was a, 
a, a Bengali playwright, a very famous man. Girish Ghosh was his name. And either he, I think through him, he brought a lot of these theater people to see Ramakrishna. And this large group of very talented artistic people came. And uh, many of the more orthodox were totally scandalized by these people because it was such a bridge uh, abrogation of the caste rules to have them there. But Ramakrishna loved them because they were so so talented and passionate and capable and dedicated to what they were doing. And after they left, he said, you know, in response to the criticism, he said, uh, it's true, he said, at the moment their God is art, but they know how to worship. <laughs> and then he said, and when time passes and Divine Mother becomes their God, he said, you'll see, they know how to worship. And Girish Ghosh was a dissolute, but he became a very great devotee because he knew how to worship. When he did what he did, he did it with 100%. And as soon as he elevated his goal, he just turned and was able to do that. So never think that anything you're doing is not part of your spiritual life because it's training you to give all your energy to everything you do, which is what it is to be God-realized. All right. God bless you.